Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... Putting this myth around that everything's an overnight success doesn't give people the time horizon to actually try properly because... If you're young and you're building a company and you think like, if it's not a success within the first six months or a year, then I'm a failure. Young entrepreneur Zach Altman has created, built up and now sold not one, but two startups. His second lounge buddy took on the disparate, uneven, partly manually organized booking systems for airport lounges, and it disrupted the sector via digital efficiency. But when Zach and his co-founders eventually sold to Giant American Express, that presented a whole set of new challenges to navigate. In part two of our chat, Zach Altman talks of the pivotal steps needed to achieve scale with Lounge Buddy, how to navigate the transition from a 30-person company you co-founded to meshing with a 60,000-employee corporate juggernaut like Amex. As for what Zach Altman will do next... Well, he's brewing on a couple of ideas, but he wants Australian startups to share the love a bit more by offering more equity to their employees. And he would like for founders to prioritise the well-being of employees as well as their own mental health to avoid burnout. Here's Zach Altman. Zach Altman, co-founder of Lounge Buddy and Taxi Pro. You're a serial entrepreneur. Welcome back. What are your markers of success? You sold Taxi Pro. How old were you when you sold Taxi Pro to Gabby Leibovich? I was 18 or 19, probably 19. Yeah. Did they pay you a big bundle of money? It wasn't that much. There were different competing offers at the time because I was speaking, I was speaking to Uber, I was speaking to them, I was speaking to the different taxi networks. And they, the taxi networks were going to pay more, but I saw that, um, and Uber was potentially going to pay more, but I saw that they were, they wanted to build it into something bigger. And that really excited me. Uh, and so I kind of took a smaller amount for that. But again, like taxis weren't my interest. And so I was kind of shopping it around at that time. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, do you mind me asking, was it sort of like a million dollars, five million, or was it a hundred thousand dollars that you sold it for? Yeah, it was less than a million. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's pretty amazing result yeah. <laughs> for some, you know, your first yeah. business. Definitely a good outcome. Yeah. What are your markers of success? Now, even looking back on your sort of short but um, meteoric career. Like my markers of my personal success? Yeah, yeah. and what you've achieved in, in business. How do you feel about all that? Yeah, so I'm, I'm baseline like somewhat of an insecure person. So I look at it and I still think of like, I'm not good enough. Like there's still, you look around and there's so many people who are so much better. Um, but then I think personally, one of the things that I'm proudest of with with Lounge Buddy, for example, is that we had a lot of life-changing outcomes for members of our team. And it wasn't just like the founders that did well, like a lot of the team had equity. And so hearing about people buying, you know, their first houses and, you know, all these different things that they could um, now be able to do as a result of like being part of what we built. And it's kind of this 
like it's this really beautiful thing of like they took a chance on us as a company and as a team and as a result like you know they had a positive outcome as well and i think that's why i think like a lot of a lot of companies should be giving more equity and kind of I'd like to say like spreading the love a little bit mm. more across the team because like the more positive outcomes and stuff that we have for general teams um the better it is and like the more invested that people are and i'm not sure some of the australian programs are super um are super favorable towards giving people equity i know that's changed recently and i'm still brushing up on it but yeah i think more equity to more people um should be a concept. Yeah. Do you think that would change the environment here a bit? You've been I, critical of the sort of the, the startup environment here or that it's not, um, it doesn't allow people to flourish enough. Yeah. I think there should be a lot more benefits to giving employees equity. And when it comes to like tax offsets and stuff like that, there should be more favorable. Like in the US, there's, there's certain programs around um, like QSBS and whatnot, which encourages investments in small businesses. Um, and so you get a lot of tax concessions and stuff for that. And it encourages, even once you've had an exit, to try as quickly as possible to put money back into companies and entities to continue to, to get the tax benefits. And I think like you can't just say like, go and innovate. If people just innovate more and, and we should encourage innovation more, like, I think sentiment is there, but you've got to kind of put the policy and put the the actual incentive behind it. Make it so people aren't aren't investing in startups and investing in companies out of like the goodwill of their heart. Make well, it just because they get a tax deduction and therefore we have lots of failures yeah. as well. I mean, well, that can be a problem too. I think like Silicon Valley has a lot of failures. And I think it's kind of rolling the dice of if you roll a dice a hundred times, how many times are you going to roll a six versus if you roll it, you know, a thousand times. And so the more chances that we have um, in order to create the successes, I think that's generally favorable for the ecosystem. And usually it shows that it's like the return on investment pays off. That it's um, like, if you look at a lot of startup funds and all of that, it shows that the more companies that you put money into, the more like the more sure it is that you're going to get some sort of positive return. And so I think even though we will end up with more failures, you'll end up with more outside successes. And so I think we should take more chances. And I want to encourage everyone if you can put, like, I think 5% is a nice number of, of your, your savings and stuff into whether it's a startup fund or different groups, like to diversify your portfolio. It should be an asset class, like your bonds, you have your stocks. And then you have like the high potential growth um, startups, but you can put it into a fund that could be returning like 20% year on year, um, but it's just locked up like private equity is for multiple years. And so like there's a lot of, you know, potential and positive outcomes that can come from investing in startups. When you went to do to create Lounge Buddy with Tyler, what did you take? What did you learn from these other experiences that you took with you to Lounge Buddy? Yeah. So from Taxi Pro, I definitely learned that like in any exit outcome, I wanted the the product and like what we built to continue. Because it's very disheartening to work on something for years and then to just have it die one day. 
And so you always saw an exit strategy. Why is that? For lounge buddy? Yeah. You didn't want to stay in it for 20 years? If you're speaking to an investor and you have to put this stuff in your pitch deck and everything, when you're speaking to an investor, you got to look at like the entry and the exit point and who's going to put money into you. If you're saying we're never going to sell, it's always going to be private. You're never going to get right. your money back. Right. Right. Like there's no, why would you invest in yeah. that? Um, and so yeah, you, okay, you have to tell it. a story around either you're going to IPO or you're going to be acquired, one of the two. And, or you're going to be so profitable that you're going to return the money and then some, and it's yeah. going to be some magical. And so you, you kind of have to think about this outcome. But, All right. So sorry, I, yeah. I um, pushed you off onto another tangent. Yeah. What did you take with you? Yeah. So first one was one of the product to, to continue even after I'd gone. Um, so like longevity of that, I think was super important. Um, I think the second one is just, I was a better like product engineer and builder. Like I knew, I knew what I was doing a little bit more. I knew what the different tactics were. I knew what my priorities should be. I knew all the tools of the trade, um, knew how to get featured, know how to do all these different things. And so, um, for me, it was just, you're kind of starting 10 steps in, Yeah. Uh, which you know, that experience is incredibly useful. In in the first days, say of Lounge Buddy and Taxi Pro, did you actually build the app yourself or did you have to bring in a couple of software engineer friends or? So Taxi Pro was all me um, through the end. For Lounge Buddy, I was, I was building a lot of pieces of it, like even up in till the end, probably 20, maybe once we were acquired by American Express, I didn't really write code so much anymore just because I was so busy on other stuff. But like, I always liked building and it's like any new foray that we went into, whether it was like building the API endpoints for our partners, it's like I would be dabbling my toes or fingers or whatever the phrasing is into that first while like the team would focus on like the core product and iterating. Um, because I know how to do stuff. I knew the entire um, infrastructure that we had and I knew how to do stuff quicker. So I could be more like a mercenary and get stuff done in a day or two. Yeah. And so, yeah, through and through, always been part of the building. Was there one crucial step that really catapulted Lounge Buddy in its growth? Um, I would say it's a collection of steps. Like I also have a theory... It goes back to the same thing. I know I keep talking about it, but increasing your surface area of opportunity that it's like part of it is just time. Like if you have a company that's around for a year versus five years, like if you're around for five years, that's five times the amount of time that you have to succeed. And and so like longevity is important, but I think over a, over a timeline, like getting featured pretty early on was a huge moment for us. Like getting off us, like having a, uh, like lounges or airlines um, signing a partner with partnership with us early on. When like, you say featured, you mean in lists of, oh, you must have this app if you go traveling. So for us getting featured, we were like front page of the app store. Like this is before the today list and everything. It was, you went onto the app store and we were one of like the five apps at the top that wow. would scroll through. And so, and did, sorry, just to digress yeah. again, do you get that because you are genuinely a good app and someone's assessed it as that, or do you pay for that? There is no amount of money that you can pay to get that. Really? Um, okay. Aside from like investing in a good product. So for a lot of those, like particularly around like iOS launches, like yeah. the quick, easy tip is 
use their new features and be a showcase for like why the new version of iOS is the best version of iOS. And so for us at that time, we had the whole new design style. We used a lot of like the new interesting APIs that they'd introduced. And um, the second part is it was a good app. And like, so the experience was good. And then the third part is you want to be unique. Like the an easy part for us that kind of had the longevity of being featured um, over time is that if you wanted to create a list of the top 10 travel apps, like you're not going to do 10 airline apps. No. Right? And so you're going to pick two or three airlines. You're going to pick one or two car companies, one or two hotel companies. And so we were the one that was always in the category of like your experience at the airport. Yeah, right. And so like we would build out, we would beat out people like Qantas and all the others because like the Delta app is better than the Qantas yeah, one. Yeah, right. And, but we're not competing on the same playing field, but we're still in travel. Mm. And so we'd be featured alongside. And so being unique is useful as well. So I asked about sort of one step that may yeah. have catapulted growth. What was the, uh, the key challenges? I mean, it's never 10 steps up. It's usually what, two steps forward, one back or one Everything forward and three perfect. back? The whole time, nothing ever went wrong. <laughs> No, I don't uh, believe you. <laughs> I don't believe myself either. Um, no, there was a lot of challenges. Like I think early on, um, when we did get our first partners to start selling lounge access, in my mind, and again, now that I think back on this, it's really stupid. But I was like, we have our first partner. Like, let's plan on how many bookings we're going to get per day. And then the first week that we launched, we got zero bookings. And you go from like, we're going to get so many bookings. And at the time, I think... Like this, the naivety of it. But then, like I look back on it now, it's like it was Alaska Airlines that had like five lounges across the U.S. and like nobody knew us for booking. And so, who were we to think that yeah. all of a sudden I'm going to get like we're going to get bookings every day for this unknown feature for this location that we don't even have that many people going through? Like, and so what we learned over time is that like we struggled with a lot of our bookings until we had a critical mass. Um, of, I think it was over 150 lounges and like credit to Brent and Tyler, they did all the research into this of, of like which airports we needed in order to be able to market, like we sell lounge access and get the partnerships to where we could do general marketing to where we were likely to hit most people on most trips so that like our marketing would pay off and that people could rely on using us. And it wasn't until we had that critical mass of lounges, which is hard to get yeah. when you're not selling very many lounges, like no. much access before. But it was very clear. I think it was like the 150 lounge mark that after then, that our bookings just started to go up and up and up because people could rely on us. And we had a lot of the right locations and we had diversity of locations. Um, and yeah, it's like in, in Dubai, we had like 10 different lounges and hotels and different places that we were selling access to. Wow. Hotels in airports. Yeah. So that was the biggest challenge? Biggest challenge is getting partners when, when you know that even once you get the partner, you're not going to make them any money <laughs> and you kind of have to like fake it a bit um, and kind of do- How other. so? You, you're kind of- you're massaging like the timelines and, and talking to them about the pricing and different stuff and, and just maintaining the relationship, even when you're getting no customers, that it's like, trust us in the long term. Like, you know, we haven't put efforts into this. We're just setting things up. Like be patient with us. Like it doesn't cost you anything. Let's just keep it like this for another year. 
Um, and then we would try really hard in that next year. And so luckily, like we had the turning point, but yeah, it's hard when you launch something, you think it's going to be big, like your previous launches, and then you just get flatlined. Well, it's going to be an overnight success, of course. Yeah, we put again, all this yeah. work in. <laughs> uh, I mean, is that a myth? I know you've talked about this before. Oh, uh, yeah. I I hate the whole overnight success thing. And like, yes, there are a few companies that kind of are outliers, but that's the reason they're notable is because they're outliers. And it's like OpenAI is the easiest example now of like ChatGPT. Uh, Everyone's talking absolutely. about it as this magical new thing that people don't realize has been around for the last six, seven years. And so six years ago, well, people- it was were, only launched at the end of last year, wasn't it? ChatGBT was launched at the end of last year, but, but OpenAI, open the APIs to actually like use the underlying language models were around for years prior. Like there's the multiple different, there's version yeah. two, three, 3.5. And it was only when ChatGPT was launched after three, like version 3.5 was around for a little while before the more consumer product was launched. And so now all of a sudden people are like, oh, this magical stuff yeah. has just started. And it's, it's like all of this stuff has been around for a while. And I think- But meaning there's been a lot of hard work put in and yeah. a lot of iterations usually with companies to make them an overnight success. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's, I think people like putting this myth around that everything's an overnight success kind of doesn't give people the time horizon um, to actually try properly. Because if you're young and you're building a company and you think like, if it's not a success within the first six months or a year, then I'm a failure or the product or the company is a failure is kind of, it's this lie that we've kind of perpetuated when yeah. really like we should be telling people that, you know, you should iterate and it does take time. And if you truly believe that it's going to be something, even if you are onto the right thing and you're doing all the right moves and all that sort of stuff, like it can still take years until it actually flips into something that is hugely successful and and all of that. But yeah, you shouldn't have such a short time horizon. Yeah. Did that happen to you? Do you think you thought, oh, this is going to be, it's going to happen really quickly? I definitely had that like, um, definitely had that early on and definitely like with Lounge Buddy and everything, like my patience was, was kind of tested through that process because like things do take longer than you want. And so that's where I'm looking at it now as I go to the future of, you know, what, what would I want to be doing or what do I want to focus on for the next five, 10 years? It's not what's fun for this year. It's what's going to be interesting for the long term. And so where people get wrapped up in like chatbots or like web three and crypto and like AI stuff right now, it's like these are all waves of fads that kind of come through. And so is there an underlying company or product that you can build that maybe uses those tools? Maybe it uses AI, but like, unless you've already been doing AI for years, like you're probably not the right person mm -hmm. to be, to be like jumping on the AI wave to build something truly novel in AI. That doesn't mean you can't build like, um, a social product that uses AI, but maybe like your fundamental is the social product. Your fundamental is the travel product or yeah. like finance product or something. That's your fundamental um, that uses these technologies that kind of come in waves. You stayed on an Amex to help propel Lounge Buddy and to settle it into such a massive company. Yeah. I mean, 
How difficult was that? Because it's usually very difficult for founders to then kind of mesh with a very corporate structure. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of learnings from both sides. I think fundamentally, like on the positive side, like LoungeBuddy and American Express, we had a lot of very complementary and similar values. And so like that's best exemplified when like COVID hit and the world shut down, travel shut down, every lounge had shut down, but Amex had this policy of we're not firing anyone. Like at least for this year, like the company stays and we're going to figure it out. And like they kept that promise and like we were able to like move quickly and, you know, help within the travel industry and all that sort of stuff. But they had like a very good culture that's focused around people and the team and, and all of that. So I think culture wise, like we were a good fit. I think the hard parts that will happen with any acquisition, because I think a lot of people don't realize how much work goes into an acquisition. They think, oh, one day you get acquired and then you run away the next day and yeah. everything's magical. But, you know, there's a lot of steps of moving processes, moving, um, you got to shift a lot of your systems. And as a small 30 person company moving into a 60,000 person organization, you, there's a whole different dynamic of how you operate and you have to relearn that and relearn that very, very quickly. And, and so like what I learned is that while I enjoyed like the team that we're on and the, a lot of people within the company, I don't like big companies. I like mm-hmm. building things small. And I also didn't like that. Um, as we look to the future, like we'd already figured out a lot of what the next steps that we wanted to, to do as a team and everything yep. was like, for me, it was a solved problem and it just needed execution and a lot of tweaking along the way, yeah. but it was a solved problem. And as soon as something's solved, I get bored. And I, in my mind, there were a lot better other people who are better at executing, more operations focused, that, that would be a lot better suited and better than me at kind of executing the next steps. And yeah. so that's when I decided to, to move away. And like this, half of our team is still there, which is kind of a testament to um okay. to Amex is an acquiring company that it's like, you know, the team is still there and they're still innovating and moving forward and all of that, which doesn't like that doesn't always happen. A lot of the time it's the team gets frustrated and leaves. Yeah. Um, and then you have this big company that's kind of stuck with something and it's kind of a bit of a mess. Um and yeah, like couldn't have picked like one thing that I do remember is from our original pitch decks, because when you have to talk about like potential exit opportunities for investors, you kind of talk about IPO path or you identify the different acquiring companies and our target like in bold highlighted one was American Express as the ideal company to acquire us because like we were basically building something that was valuable to that we're building something that American Express valued a lot. Yeah. And so it was such a natural like complementary relationship. Yeah. Do you mind me asking what you sold it for? Don't mind you asking, but I can't answer it. <laughs> okay. Can you give me an idea of the valuation? So when you sold it? Like just to say, I'm thinking about how I can phrase it that would give the hints that won't get me in trouble. Um I don't know. I don't know a way to phrase how. Okay. Uh, 
That was so because a few years before it had been valued what at about twenty five million Australian dollars. Yeah. So in twenty sixteen, when we received the investment from Founders Fund, um, it was valued at like yeah twenty five million Australian dollars, and that was before we had our relationship with American Express. That was before we were profitable, and before we we had a lot of our lounge customers. So can project that out a little bit, uh, if you will. Four and or five times? You, you can project it out however okay. you want. <laughs> um, but yeah, I can't share exact details. Okay. No, it's it's so interesting because you were still sort of well under 30, weren't you, when you sold to Amex? Yeah, I think I was 27. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, do you come from a family of entrepreneurs? Are you folks in business? You mentioned your grandfather had been, you know, he was kind of entrepreneurial and in business. Yeah, so my grandparents are immigrants to Australia. And so they started in the in the Shimada business, so manu- clothing manufacturing right. back in the day, back in Alexandria. Um, what was their business? Would so we know it? No, so they would do like clothing manufacturing yeah, for, for groups different, like yeah, Ma- uh, for Suzanne or, stuff. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, and so it's like the big thing was they would take European fashion and then manufacture cheaper versions of yep, it here yep. and then sell when it. When we had a thriving clothing industry exactly, here. Exactly, Um Clothing manufacturing, yeah. Yeah, and so that's, that's, that's what they, that's what they were doing back in the day, but, you know, they... They started in Australia. It's like my grandmother was a cleaner and my grandfather was driving forklifts and stuff around. And so for them, it was always like they worked hard and it's like strong work ethic. Um, and we're always like interested in doing deals or business or like, like looking at opportunities and stuff like that. So definitely get that from, from them and that inspiration from them. And then, um, like my dad had worked within startups um not during a great time like during the the dot-com crash um here in australia and so in what capacity did he, he was on the finance that? side okay. so he got to yep. go into a lot of companies and shut them down oh, or downsize them yeah which was very depressing work i guess i would say yeah and so didn't want to do that anymore <laughs> Yeah. So you've talked about, um, I mean, in terms of what you might do next, you've talked about uh, that you're interested in human-centric tech and digital trust. Can those two phrases kind of um, exist or are they oxymoronic? Um, I think like one of my biggest concerns that we have right now, particularly with large language models, is that We've gone from like a small group of people generating some random content uh, to anyone on earth can kind of generate seemingly human readable and seemingly true content. And then not only that, but then generate the sources for that and generate the sources for those to where there's this chain of of content that we don't quite trust. And at the same time, we've had the, the almost like defunding of um, media industries and groups like that, like the groups that you almost want more than now, more than ever of like these trusted voices that I know that they do the research and I know that they have a good reputation. And so I can trust, you know, what they're saying. We've kind of eroded those voices in favor of, of like, of just random bots on the internet, mm-hmm. um, random bots on Twitter and whatever it is. And so we're at this really, I think, 
somewhat dangerous time of like the erosion of trust in what you can read and what you can see. And there hasn't been many solutions around like, how can we validate or how can we provide authority to content on the internet? Yeah. Um, and how do we know who we can trust? And maybe that's different for different groups of us that it's like, I might trust different sources to, to uh, what other people might trust. And, you know, that's okay. Um, how do we figure out how we can almost like know that what we're seeing is real? And that's exacerbated when you have like AI, uh, not AI stuff, but VR and, yeah. and, um, augmented reality sort of stuff of like, being able to trust our eyes is oh, what we exactly. understand is yeah. we're at this really interesting point. And so I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. And I think the second thing is like when it comes to startups and building companies, like a lot of groups have started very much focusing on this idea of like optimizing metrics and that we all just are numbers as users and and it's like whatever we can do to edge out the extra 2% conversion or anything like that. And it's kind of at the odds of or um, at the expense of, you know, humanity and people's mm -hmm. experience. And it's kind of, I look at it like, where is the fun in building stuff? Like, where is the personality in products? Like, why, why does everything look the same and feel the same? And it's like, we always have the same templates and it's all like, I just look at that and it's boring. And it's, it's, everything has become like so over-optimized and it's like, where's, where's the personality? Where's the humanity in it? Where's the like interesting, exciting elements to it? And so I'm very much in favor of like, even if it's not efficient, even if it's not like perfectly, perfectly optimized, if you feel like it would make a good experience or it'd be like interesting or fun to do, like I would encourage more of that um, in product development. And I also think about it in life of like, when you go through your day, we kind of hyper-optimize everything. And then we put this gym session at the end and it's like, okay, we've got to get everywhere quickly. And it's like, <laughs> and why do not? Do everything, fit everything yeah. in. And it's kind of like, if you just, if you reduce the optimization and you have to like walk 15 minutes to get here and there, and all of a sudden you're like spreading th these things mm. throughout the day, and you're like less efficient with how you're doing things. And then all of a sudden, like you don't need that gym session at the end of the day because you've already done your fitness in like walking between meetings mm. or mm. doing that sort of stuff. And so like there can be like beauty in, in inefficiency. And mm. I think like, yeah, we don't have to be so hyper optimized and like we can do more, we can give ourselves a break and like do more fun things. Well, that's really encouraging to hear because yeah. that may be the mindset you're thinking of perhaps the next business or the next product that you come up with. Just a few really quick questions yes. that I ask all my guests and it doesn't have to be a long answer. What are you obsessed about at the moment? Be it a cause, a film, a or, meal? So a I trip. think multiple different answers to this. First one is like mental health. Um, I think that's a super important um, industry that a lot of people are taking advantage of. Um, but I think there's a lot of like roads to, to development there. Second thing would be like AI language models, all of the, I think it's like a fascinating industry right now. And on a very like nerdy technical level, HTMX, um, playing around with that right now. And I think it's like a fascinating departure from single page apps. HTMX. Sorry. What's that? <laughs> so it's, um, it's a way that allows you to do like Ajaxy um, asynchronous calls from HTML. So instead of having to build a whole single page or separate app to do something that feels interactive, you can do that in a more lightweight way without 
having to deploy a whole separate single page app. Was that the end of that answer? Yeah. <laughs> I was about, no, that's, a lot of fascination. That's great. Um, mental health, do you feel you started to burn out? Yes, definitely at the end. Like when you're going through an acquisition process, you're working two jobs mm. where it's like you're working the day job and you can't really tell everyone within the company that we might be acquired. We're doing due diligence right now because what if it doesn't happen? Yeah, what if, like, got to keep that some secrecy, people? yeah. And so you're working your day job doing the regular company stuff. And then in the evening, you're doing acquisition stuff. And then once that's all over, your reward is that you now have to do integration things in addition to doing this. And so, and then working within a large company, you you kind of get told no more. You go from being able to do what you want to you have to fit within a, a domain. And like not getting the reward at the end of, of kind of a lot of work is, is like, is a common cause for burnout. And so, yeah, at the end, I didn't realize how, how much energy I'd lost. And so it took me a good year after, after leaving American Express and leaving to kind of recover from the 10 years prior of like not stopping in startups and going from one thing to the other and building and all my days and weekends and everything and maybe taking a week off. Um, and so, yeah, burnout's a big thing. I think there's a lot of issues around like depression and anxiety. Um, I think ADHD is a very common topic right now. And I think like the current system in Australia around psychiatric care around that is quite abusive. Um, there's no reason it should cost so much. Um, and I think there's just all these different areas of mental care that right now the systems aren't set up for people's individual success. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, it hurts people. And it's like, it's a very common, it's similar to saying it's like someone comes in with a broken arm and it's like, okay, that's not covered. Um, you know, you would never say that. Yeah. And so, but you we're doing the same care. thing for, mm. for mental health. Yeah. Um, and then you have a lot of people kind of taking advantage of the situation, which I think is, is also unhealthy. Still a few quick yeah, questions, quick answers. <laughs> not so quick. <laughs> no, no, that's all right. Um, what's the toughest thing you think you've learned Tough. Or the toughest thing you've faced in your journey so far? I mean, firing someone is mm -hmm. probably, mm -hmm. I, I don't think anyone understands. And I'm like a very emotional person. And so you don't understand kind of the hit that it takes. And, and so like people have families and everything and you're responsible for their livelihood. And then you got to tell them that like, you know, given their, their shitty day, you know, it's never easy. And if it is easy, I don't know what's what's happening for you, but yeah. Yeah. What's the biggest challenge that you faced in your journey, your entrepreneurial journey so far? Biggest challenge? I'd say one of the hardest parts, well, I think big challenge is doing the acquisition process at the same time as... Um, as trying to run the company, that was a big challenge. I would say second one, no, nah, we'll do that. That's big. And then integrating within a larger company. I yeah. think so much, you have to learn so much so quickly and like your company's on the line and the team's on the line and you gotta, you gotta kind of make it work and you gotta pay, you gotta play the character of like therapist and like architect and everything in between. So. What would you say to other young entrepreneurs, would-be entrepreneurs who think they've got a great idea and want to chase it? Do it. Just do it. I think it's a Nike one. Uh, <laughs> but I think a lot of people, there's a lot of ideas 
ideas are a dime a dozen. Uh, you learn the most by doing it, potentially failing, or maybe maybe you like iterate and you shift what you want to do. But I I think sitting on an idea and just waiting for the right time or waiting for the right, like you got to at least try something or meet people who can help you try, like get out there and do something. And so like the best advice that was given to me, um, and it's kind of very apt right now, is one of the times when I was visiting the US in 2012, I actually met with Sam Altman, who's the, the founder of OpenAI. And his big question to me, because uh, I was talking about wanting to move to the US and everything, and his question is like, why aren't you here? It's like, what's stopping you from being here? And it's like, whatever excuse I could, it's like, there was no excuse for that. And so then I moved and, you know, the rest is history. Zach Altman, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. You're so inspiring. So well done. And thank you for joining me on Build It, They'll Come and good luck in your next venture. Thank you so much. It's been a great time. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.